Hi, Journey. How y'all doing? Great. I pray you had a stellar week and that you were overwhelmed in a multitude of ways by the goodness of our amazing God. If you've been around here for very long, you know that we're chewing through the book of Romans. This is message number seven of eight. So after today, there's one weekend left in Romans. And I've been praying for all of us that we would be gripped through the book of Romans by the very nature and character of God, that it wouldn't just be about learning about another book of the Bible, but that we would actually know God better, who he is, what he is about, all that he invites us to be about for him and with him. And so without any further ado, let's just get right to it. Romans 13, if you've got a Bible, you're welcome to turn there or you're welcome to follow along with me on the screens. Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 1. This one is like swallow hard right out of the chutes. Everyone must submit to governing authorities. Whoa. For all authority comes from God. Those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and they will be punished. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what's right, and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. But if you're doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They're God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what's wrong. So you must submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. Pay your taxes, too, for these same reasons. For government workers need to be paid so they can tithe. Oh, it doesn't say that, does it? But it's sort of parenthetical right there, I think. They're serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them and give respect and honor to those who are in authority. If you remember from last week, Paul closes chapter 12 of Romans with those staccato exhortations, those bullet point commands, sort of just one right after another, sort of rapid fire. But here, Romans chapter 13, right out of the chutes, Paul's focusing on a singular point. We, Christ followers, are to be submitted to government authorities. And frankly, most of the time that any Christian spends on this section of Scripture is not spent asking, well, God, what in the world does this mean to my life as much as it's spent asking, okay, God, where is the exception, right? We're always looking for the loophole. How do I get to get out of obeying what Paul's saying here? The question most Christians are really asking is, Are we as followers of Jesus Christ expected to obey orders from evil rulers? And that's like a big gulp, right? Like, whoa, what do we do with that? Now, here's what we do know. God's established three institutions here on earth. The home, the church, and the state. Most of us know at least a little bit of what God has to say about the home and the church, right? But when it comes to the state, we don't necessarily understand how that's always supposed to go. But Romans 13, here it is. The central passage in all of the scripture regarding how we're to relate to human government. I'm going to give like a great big caveat here. We're going to talk about this at least for a little bit. And we're not going to answer all the questions that this text raises. 
Like, for example, what does it mean to be a Christian living under a pagan government? Another question is, is a coup d'etat, which is a violent overthrow of the present form of government, is that ever justified? What about capital punishment when the government kills somebody as way of punishment? What about that? Under what circumstances should Christians disobey the law? And how do you respond when those in governmental leadership are corrupt? How do you interact with them? And then how far are Christians supposed to go to express our Christian concerns, our Christian ethic, our Christian conscience? They're fantastic, great questions, none of which have simple answers, and lots of it we're going to have to fill in the blanks on our own with. I will not be able to answer all those. What we know is that God established all forms, Paul says it, God established all forms of human government. God established them. All forms of human government. And Paul's talking about rulers and kings and queens and emperors and magistrates and presidents and dictators and potentates of every variety. What Paul is not referencing is any particular form of human human government. He's not talking about democracy or aristocracy or oligarchy or monarchy or socialism or communism or dictatorship. He's just speaking in very broad, very general terms about all forms of human government anywhere in the world. This institution of government comes from God himself. And Paul gives this very clear-cut command. Everyone must submit to governing authorities. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. But we all have our excuses, don't we? For when we don't submit to governing authorities. We all have our excuses, but officer, I'm just trying to be a good steward of the little bit of time that God has given me. That's why I'm exceeding this. Have you ever tried that one? I'm being a good steward of the little bit of time. Jesus is coming back quickly, and so I'm in a hurry to do the Lord's work. We all have our excuses, some of them better than others. Watch this. I'm Amy Rook. I'm a detective now with the MSU Police Department. My name is Roland Moore, and I'm with the Bozeman Police Department. I've been with the MSU Police Department about five and a half years now. And basically, my role is I'm a patrol officer, which simply means that I have a beat within Bozeman, and I patrol that beat. I don't know if we receive as many excuses as we do all-out lies. I'm driving, and this Suburban just blows straight through the stop sign. One night, I had stopped a kid. When I patted him down, I ended up finding drugs in his pocket. And instantly, he came up with a normal excuse. These aren't mine. So I was like, well, they were in your pants. He goes, the pants aren't mine either. Initiate my traffic lights, and I pull them over. And uh, it's this lady. She has her husband with her, and she has her kids in the back. Really, where did they come from? I, 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 don't, I don't know. So you stole somebody's pants? Yes, I did. Well, that is most unfortunate that you stole somebody's pants with drugs in them. And I tell her who I am and the reason that I'm stopping her. She's just very startled. She says, well, what do you mean? She says, I came to a stop. I absolutely stopped. And I'm not even sure why you're pulling me over. And so I kind of was taken back a little bit because it was such a blatant violation of blowing the stop sign. One night I caught four kids on the roof of a building. They had to crawl the fourth-story window, walk across a six-inch wide ledge to get onto the roof, and they were up there drinking. All of them were underage. 
And so I, I just said, well, ma'am, you, you blew the stop sign. You, you didn't come to any kind of a stop at all. You went straight through it, and there's lots of little kids in this area, and it's dangerous to be doing that. And she said, absolutely, I did not do that. She turns over to her husband and says, did I stop for the stop sign? Which he responds, no, you did not. And what they told me was they didn't realize it was illegal. I mean, they had to have someone else buy the beer for them, and they had to break into a building, break a window out, and climb onto the roof, but they had no idea it was illegal. Which she responds to me, I stopped for the stop sign. <laughs> so I said, okay, ma'am, if that's what you think happened. One time I pulled over a guy who was actually driving on the wrong side of the road, head on into traffic. I mean, he almost hit me in my patrol car. A lot of times people forget to renew their registration for their license plates. And when I asked him why he'd been doing that, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe there's a good reason. He told me that he's from California, and his friends say he drives too fast. If I pull over 10 people for it, I can almost count on four of them are going to tell me, Officer, I am literally on my way to get my registration. That's the whole reason I'm out. I just picked this day to do it. I, I, d I don't understand. Well, I saw you, and I got nervous. So you, you tried to drive into my car? Well, well, okay, maybe I'm a little drunk. There we go. That's the answer I was looking for. The best one I heard was on a Sunday afternoon. This gentleman must have used this excuse before. So he, he knew why I was there. He didn't even have to ask. He said, officer, I know why you're here, and I'm just letting you know I'm on my way right now to get my registration. The other one that people always give me is, you know, I pay your salary because I pay taxes. Fantastic, I pay taxes too, this one's on me. Well, I kind of chuckled and I said, well, sir, it's Sunday. And then he kind of gave me the look of, well, that one didn't work. <laughs> one time I pulled over April Bennett for expired tags. Uh, she said that her husband hadn't put them on for her yet. That's fantastic. You know, Amy Brooke used to be our kids pastor, right? Kids pastor turned police officer detective. Wow. Paul says everyone must submit to governing authorities. Like, no excuses. And it doesn't matter. Like, right? There's no caveat about it whether your president or your governor or your legislator, your city commissioner, or your county commissioner is a Christian or a pagan. The command is submit. And what does submit mean? It means to voluntarily, voluntarily follow the direction of those in authority over you. Now get this, submission is not the same as obedience. They're related, but they're not the same. Obedience is all about our outward performance. Submission is all about the attitude of our hearts toward those in authority over us. And that is a critical distinction because, get this, you might not always be able to obey those in authority over you. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But you can and should always have an attitude of submission which means that you believe that God is accomplishing his will in your life through everyone that he's placed in authority over you. That's key. Because at the end of the day, it's all about God. It isn't just about the person who's over you. And that matters because what we know is that we sometimes have to deal with unsaved spouses and mean-spirited parents and cranky bosses and professors who should have retired decades ago 
Sometimes we work for people we can't stand. We live with cruel people. Sometimes we suffer under governments that consistently violate personal and spiritual ethics that we hold. And so what in the world are we to do in the midst of that kind of a world? Well, there's a lot of things we can do to change our circumstances, can't we? But the most important thing in the midst of all of that is our heart attitude. We must submit Paul says, to the one who is in authority because we believe to the core of our being that God's put that person in authority in your life for a purpose. And God's will is somehow being done through that person who you might not like very much, even when we don't see it, even when we don't understand it, even when it doesn't feel like it. Which raises this fantastic question. What in the world is a Christ follower supposed to do if the government orders us to do something that conflicts with our faith? Acts 5.29 answers this question really, really clearly. Peter says this. We must obey God rather than any human authority. We must obey God rather than any human authority. See, God himself is ultimately the very highest authority. He is the one whom we are to please. And if you remember back to the Old Testament of the Bible, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were told, commanded by King Nebuchadnezzar, to bow down before this big, giant, 90-foot statue, probably of the king himself, and they didn't. They flatly disobeyed the king. They took a stand for their faith and they were completely willing to suffer the consequences. Peter and the other apostles did it in Acts 5.29. The rulers are telling them, don't preach the gospel. And they're like, we must obey God rather than any human authority. And our attitude matters. When you read Daniel 3 about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you see how respectfully they spoke to the king. Remember, they're flatly disobeying his orders, which means that they're disobeying, yes, but in the midst of that, they're carrying with them this submitted heart. And God bless them despite their disobedience. Leaves lots of questions, I know, but we gotta roll on. Romans 13, 8 to 10 Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandments say, you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. Now some people, they take this passage to mean that you're not ever supposed to borrow money. But I want to be really clear that that text does not say that. And then you take the rest of the counsel of the Bible, and nowhere in the scripture does God forbid borrowing. Now scripture does warn strongly, borrower borrower becomes servant to the lender. The Bible repeatedly reminds us that excessive debt leads to shame. Sometimes excessive debt even leads to crime which means that we shouldn't ever borrow more money than we can honestly pay back and we're to pay what we owe when we owe it, including the love deal. We owe love. And love is this one debt that try as we may, we can never repay it. And any effort that we make to try to repay it pales when compared to the incredible love of God himself. 
And Paul's saying, look, you have this love debt and the only thing you can do to chip away at it, which by the way, you never will, but the only thing you can possibly do is love people, love all people, love them in Jesus' name. Just love them. That means that as we get up every single day, we're to be saying, okay, God, today I'm going to meet people, probably a whole bunch of people who desperately need the love of God. And it's my job right here, right now, today, to show them God's love. We are, all of us, ambassadors of God's love. I don't care if it's in the office or in the classroom or on the job site. Or did you hear about this? On the school bus, as the bus monitor is being verbally assaulted by literally every single person on the bus. Have you heard about this? And what's, I'm going to take a little aside here. I don't always do this, but I'm going to. What's so incredibly disturbing about that event, right? Here's a 60-something-year-old woman whose job it is to maintain order, keep order on this bus. A bunch of middle school kids on this bus taunt her. I watched the video, 10 minutes long, YouTube video. I wish I hadn't. They said things to that woman that you, you, ju- you just cannot imagine. And she just sits there, and she, she, she says one thing you know she says if you don't have anything nice to say just don't say anything at all and then they just pile on and 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 what's so alarming and what's so disturbing about that is that no one stopped it right like not a single kid on that bus had enough of a moral compass enough of a conscience to like stand up and go like knock it off stop it and this this woman has moved to tears and now everybody all over the world has her retirement or whatever fund you want to call it up to about $640,000 that she's going to get because people feel so sorry for her. She won't have to do that dumb job anymore. I like that. But nobody had a moral compass to say, stop it. And it's disturbing to me because that, that's our society, isn't it? Right? Like that, that's what we're becoming. Mercilessly taunting a defenseless 60-year-old woman, moving her to tears and nobody stopped it. Nobody felt the calling, the mission to be an ambassador of God's love on that bus. But that's our job. That's our job every single day. Show God's love to people. And no matter how challenging the situation is, we don't ever get to walk away and say, okay, I've loved enough, I'm gonna stop loving now. We don't ever ever get to stop loving. I don't care how irritable, how cranky, how annoying, how aggravating, how frustrating, how crabby, how unreasonable, or how cantankerous people are, we do not ever get to stop loving them. And you know, like people say foolish stuff and people do things to push our buttons, right? Like on purpose. Some people are what one guy calls EGRs. You know what an EGR is? An extra grace required, right? Extra grace required. They're just people who are really hard to love. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you are those. No, none of you. Some people in our lives, they have like the spiritual gift of irritation, don't they? They know exactly how to get under our skin, how to get on our very last nerve, how to push us over the edge, causing us to become frustrated and upset, and we know them. We are them. We work with them and we go to school with them. Sometimes we're even married to them. 
And Paul says, look, you don't ever get to stop loving people who drive you crazy. I don't care. I don't care. You don't get to stop loving the mean people. You don't ever get to walk away and say, okay, I'm all done loving. I'm going to hate you now. It'd feel real good sometimes, wouldn't it? But Paul says, you don't get to do that. You don't get to say, love didn't work in that case. I'm all done with that, moving over to hate. We don't get to do that. Because true love, which is the love of God, the kind of love that sent Jesus to a cruel Roman cross to die for me and for you, it never, ever gives up. It never, ever gives up. And Paul points out, as a matter of fact, that the whole love deal actually fulfills the big L law of God. And Paul's saying, like, when we truly love with this authentic love that comes from God, the Ten Commandments, they become real easy for us to keep. And in a church like ours, people like we are, we're sort of grace people, aren't we? We love the grace deal. We stand on grace and we preach grace. And sometimes when we're grace people, we have this propensity to sort of shy away from the law. We're like, yeah, we don't really do that. But get this, grace always leads us to the principles that undergird the law. Grace always leads us to the principles that undergird things like the Big Ten Commandments. Honesty and fidelity and contentment and kindness and on and on and on. Because see, the Ten Commandments, whether we feel it or whether we believe it or not, flow from a place of love. Lots of times we think the Ten Commandments and the laws of God, they're just big like killjoys. God's just trying to wreck our life and not let us have any fun and make us miserable. But they flow from a place of love. Because, well, what do you know? If you love your neighbor, you're not going to sleep with his wife, right? If you love people, you're not going to kill them. If you love people, you're not going to steal from them. You're not going to steal or slander their good name. If you love people, you won't begrudge them the prosperity that God has poured out on them, or you're not going to get angry because you have less than someone else does. The law, big L law, is all about spelling out everything that love looks like in real life as we walk this stuff out. And we can think that God sending his son Jesus Christ was about all kinds of things, but at the end of the day, it was just simply about love. It was just simply about love that compelled God to send his one and only son, Jesus Christ, the one who laid down his life for you and for me, for all of humanity. And it begs the question, what is his love compelling you to do? What is the love of God like compelling you to do because see love demands that we actually get off of our rear ends and do something love isn't just this gushy sentimental feeling toward people who are hurting toward the bus monitor uh-uh. love is rather backbreaking and time-consuming involvement in the lives of people at times that are inconvenient and uncomfortable and never on our schedule. And the love of God must compel us to do something, do stuff. We don't just get to feel love and call it good. 
His love compels us to do. And then Paul says these words in Romans 13, starting in verse 11. This is all the more urgent. What's he talking about? This love deal that he just wrapped up. He's saying the love deal, attempting to repay this debt that you can't ever repay of love, but we're supposed to be about it. This love deal is all the more urgent. Why? For you know how late it is. You know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up. For our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. What's he talking about? Jesus' return. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes. Put on the shining armor of right living. Because we belong to the day we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or sexual promiscuity and immoral living or in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. Paul's saying loving each other with this authentic love of God matters because time is running out. We're that much closer to Jesus' return than we have ever been. And life is so incredibly uncertain, isn't it? No one knows how long we have to live. No one knows. We think we've got a pretty good idea, average life expectancies, but we have no idea. And that reality ought to take our breath away when we think about it. I've been spending a fair bit of time this week up at the hospital good friend of our family's mom is in the hospital in her final days of cancer. And our friend is about to get married just a couple of weeks from now. And so we're praying and praying and praying that she, her mom, who's in the hospital, last days of cancer, that she'll make it at least to that wedding. And we're asking God for even more than that. Oh God, that she would make it to that wedding but none of us knows and this week was a little touch and go and I sat with her late this week and I just asked her just me and her in the hospital room her in her hospital bed it's bleak and I said are you going to make it are you going to make it to the wedding and she said darn right I'm making it to the wedding and she's a fighter she's Italian and she's strong darn right even if I can't sit in my seat I'll be up it's going to be out at this ranch and she said I'll sit up in that barn and I'll look out the window and I'm going to be there but none of us knows Her doctors don't know, she doesn't know, I don't know. God only knows. And Psalm 90 verse 12 says, teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. Martin Luther said we ought to live with the day of our death constantly before our eyes. Why? Because it keeps us from the ultimate folly of thinking that we're going to live forever, which just gives us excuses for putting off doing the things that we know we should be doing. Paul says, look, Jesus is coming back soon. He's coming back soon. Like, are you ready? Jesus is coming back soon. Are you ready? Paul says, it's coming and like wake up and put off all those deeds of darkness that we get all tangled up in and put on this armor of right living. And what Paul's talking about there is like, when you go to bed, some of us, we wear pajamas, right? I won't do a show of hands because that'd be embarrassing. Some of us wear pajamas. And Paul says, look, when you sleep, you wear these like bed clothes, right? 
And he's equating that to our before Christ days. You had on these sort of pajamas and they were dirty pajamas. You're sort of all locked up in this mess of sin. But then you woke up and you got saved. So don't wear your pajamas to work anymore, he's saying. Because that's embarrassing. And for a follower of Jesus Christ, we're supposed to put on what? We're supposed to put on who? Jesus. Put on Jesus, leave the pajamas, leave the bedclothes behind. Those are your sleeping clothes, your BC, before Christ clothes. Put on Christ because Jesus is coming back. Are you ready? Are you ready? And then we'll close this today with Romans 14, 1 to 12. Accept other believers who are weak in faith. Don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything. But another believer with a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. What's that mean? They don't want to kill Bambi. Right? They just want to eat vegetables. No elk, no cow, no, definitely no veal. Right? For them, they only want to eat vegetables. And frankly, that's a horrible way to live. I'm just going to say it. Right? It's just a horrible way to live beef it's what's for dinner right (laughs) sorry (laughs) i've alienated a whole bunch of you it's all right i like meat those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't vegetarians you don't get to look down on the meat eaters and you don't get to do what i just did and insult the vegetarians you just don't don't look down And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do. For God has accepted them. Like, it's okay with God if you want to be a vegan. It's okay with him. Who are you to condemn someone else's servants? Their own master will judge whether they stand or fall. And with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive his approval. In the same way, some think one day is more holy than another day. While others think every day is alike you should each be fully convinced that whichever day you choose is acceptable those who worship the lord on a special day do it to honor him right what's he talking about there the sabbath right and all the people who get the sabbath right were here last night just kidding not really like paul says like pick a day like pick a day and don't fight about it Those who eat any kind of food do so to honor the Lord since they give thanks to God before eating. Those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God. For we don't live for ourselves or die for ourselves. If we live, it's to honor the Lord. If we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and rose again for this very purpose, to be Lord of both the living and of the dead. So why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For the scriptures say, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bend to me, every tongue will confess and give praise to God. Yes, each one of us will give a personal account to God. And once upon a time, a man, he took a walk and he came to a bridge, and when he got out to the middle of that bridge, he saw an obviously distraught man standing on the rail of the bridge about to jump. The man who was out taking a walk, he said to the guy standing on the rail, don't jump, I can help you. How can you help me, asked the guy standing on the rail. Well, first of all, are you a Christian? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, I am. That's wonderful, so am I. 
Said the man out for a walk. Are you a Catholic or a Protestant Christian? I'm Protestant. Ah, great. So am I. What sort of Protestant are you? Are you a Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian? Are you something else? I'm a lifetime Baptist, said the man standing on the rail. Praise the Lord, said the man. So am I. Now let me ask you this. Are you Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? I'm Northern Baptist. Are you Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? I'm Northern Conservative Baptist. Well, this is amazing. So am I. Are you Northern Conservative Baptist fundamental or Northern Conservative Baptist reformed? man on the rail scratched his head, thinking for a moment, then declared, my father raised me as a Northern Conservative Baptist reformed. It is a miracle, said the first man. Are you a Northern Conservative Baptist reformed Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist reformed Great Plains region? man on the rail said, well, that's easy. My family has always been Northern Conservative Baptist Reformed Great Lakes region. It is indeed a miracle, said the man out for a walk. I do not often meet a brother who shares my exact heritage. Just one final question. Are you Northern Conservative Baptist Reformed Great Lakes Region Council of 1855? Or Northern Conservative Baptist Reformed Great Lakes Region Council of 1872? The man on the rail replied instantly, Since the days of my great-grandfather, we have always been Northern Conservative Baptist Reformed Great Lakes Region Council of 1872. And he said it like with passion. And his statement was followed by an awkward pause and looking up, the man out for a walk ran toward him, shoved him off the bridge and cried, Die, heretic! We sort of chortle at that story because it's so doggone true, isn't it? Christians, like way more often than not, we agree on 99 out of 100 points, but we'll focus on the one thing that we disagree about won't we? And Christians have been disagreeing with each other since like the beginning of the church. Read Romans, you read Corinthians, and you discover that Christians disagreed on all sorts of things, whether or not they should eat meat offered to idols, whether or not to observe the Sabbath day, whether to eat meat or be a vegetarian, whether or not to drink wine, whether that was okay or not. And honestly, no matter what issue comes to mind, when you look around the world, you'll find Christians somewhere who disagree about them. And I gotta say, that's not always a bad thing. That's not always a bad thing. There's some protection that God seems to have set up in all of that, but there becomes this danger that our own personal preferences become so overblown that we actually refuse to fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with us. And that very thing was happening in the church at Rome. That's why Paul goes to such great lengths to help the Roman church get along despite these secondary, that's what they are, secondary differences. We're not talking about like first place issues. We're not talking about like whether or not Jesus was the son of God. We're talking about like, should I be a meat eater or a vegetarian? And they're arguing over that. And Paul's like, knock it off. Knock it off. And there's seven principles from Paul's teaching that I think we could all set into practice in our lives whenever we're interacting with people whom we disagree with. The first one is this. Will you just make up your own mind? Just make up your own mind. Just know what it is that you believe. And it doesn't mean you're closed-minded to everything else, but you just know what you believe and you know why you believe it. Because when you do, it's real easy to get along with people who hold differing points of view because you're not always threatened, right? 
You're not always threatened because you, you know exactly. I often find in conversation with people who get, and they get especially angry, right? You're conversing and you bump into something and somebody just like flies off the handle. You've probably touched into something that they aren't exactly sure what they think about that. And so they're just sort of reacting. Like, oh, I haven't thought this through. It's real easy to get along with people when you know exactly what you believe and why you believe it. And then number two, if you got to make up your mind, would you just let everyone else make theirs up too, right? And that doesn't carry to the place of like sharing our faith and helping people come to faith. We're talking about, like I said, secondary and tertiary issues around Christianity and the church, right? We're talking about whether you should be a meat eater or a vegetarian. We're talking about whether you think it's okay to drink alcohol or not okay to drink alcohol. Like, you made up your mind, so let everybody else make up their own. We don't always have to tell everybody. Like, the church love, we love to tell people, right? I'm going to tell them what to think and what to really. Like, let them choose. Number three, don't criticize people who think differently from you on secondary and tertiary issues, right? Don't take cheap shots and don't make backhanded compliments. Like, just be charitable. Just be charitable. It's okay that they drink alcohol and you don't. You don't have to slander them either way. Number four, enlarge your circle of friends. Make friends with people who disagree with you about some things. Expand your circle of friends beyond people who think just like you do. Number five, and this one is like a giant duh, focus on that which unites us, not on the things that divide us. There's just something innate in people that wants to like turn us all into little cliques, right? But it ought not be that way because the unifying factor for the people of God is who? It's Jesus. And Jesus broke down the walls that separated us from God. He broke down the walls that separate us from one another. And it's in him that we're joined together as the body of Christ. You could even say it this way. Everyone who belongs to Jesus belongs to me. Everyone who belongs to Jesus belongs to me. Paul talks about that in Romans 12. Last week we touched on that. You're not your own. We all belong to each other. And so Paul says, focus on primary issues of the Christian life, the things that we all agree on because they matter. They really matter and they matter a whole lot more than whether or not you drink alcohol or whether or not you wear flip-flops to preach in or whether you homeschool your kids. St. Augustine said it this way, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, diversity. And in all things, charity, he said. And then number six, live your life in such a way that no one can criticize your decisions. No one can criticize what you believe. Or just live a life that's marked by the very traits of Jesus himself. Humility and kindness and compassion. Love. Integrity. Hope. And live in such a way that even your most staunch critic can still respect you as someone who's worthy of being emulated. And then number seven, get and keep your own house in order. You know the deal. We like to look at everyone else's house and go like, whoa, you got kind of a mess going on over there. And we ignore our 
own. And Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. Keep your spiritual house in order. Why? All of us will stand before God. Nobody excluded. Nobody off the hook. Everyone will stand before God. And so we're to live our lives in such a way that we don't have anything to fear on that day. As a matter of fact, we should live our lives in such a way that that day we're enthusiastic about. Can't wait for that day. As we wrap up, I want to challenge you with this, and it's hard, way, way, way more difficult than it's going to sound, okay? So just let's kind of let this settle in on you. Will you go this week, and will you make every single effort possible today and tomorrow and the next day and all through the week and then next week to whenever you're tempted to criticize someone. Does that happen a bit for you? Like you ever tempted to criticize? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like nobody raised their hand. Really. Just out here on an island all by myself. The sinner's island. There I am. Whenever you're tempted to criticize someone else, if that ever happens to you, and it doesn't matter whether it's a friend or a family member or a coworker or a colleague, whether it's a politician or an actor, whether it's someone else who's part of your church with you. Before you criticize them, before you say anything, will you just stop? Like, er, kind of a stop, like dead in your tracks and pray for them. Before you say anything, stop and pray for them and ask God in that prayer to bless that person ask God in your prayer to guide that person ask God in that instant to help you hold your tongue about them ask God to rule and to reign in your heart about that person, that situation, that circumstance. Ask God to deliver you from thinking that you have to have your way, that everybody has to think just like you do. Stop before you criticize anybody and pray. And chances are when you pray first, you won't end up saying anything. I love this phrase, miss no opportunity to keep your mouth shut. I need that. Miss no opportunity to keep your mouth shut. I think about this, what if we prayed more? And what if we talked less? So that our words, when we do say something, might have more impact for God, more love from God. God, more anointing from God. Pray more, talk less, so that our words have more impact, carry more weight. Will you be about that? Will you try it, difficult as it will be? Let's try. Take your stuff, if you would, and set it aside, and I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads, and I just invite you to do whatever business that you need to do with God in these minutes.
And I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Paul says, look, this showing the love of God matters so much now because we're closer than we've ever been to Jesus coming back. None of us knows when, the day, the hour, the minute. None of us knows. And maybe there's some here today who have yet to place your faith in the good news of Jesus Christ. And maybe the Holy Spirit's been in these minutes nudging you with a sense of urgency about getting square with God. Are you square with God today? Are you square with God today? And understand this, that the good news that Jesus' offer of love and salvation and redemption, which is what makes us square with God, it's free. And the doorway to being square with God stands wide open to you right now, today. And I invite you to take that step of saving faith if you have yet to do so. And you can do that by praying with me to God, Jesus, I get it. For a long time now, I've kept you out of my life, but I get it that I'm a sinner and I get it that I can't save myself. And Jesus, I'm opening the door to you. With all the faith I can muster here and now I receive gratefully your gift of salvation and I trust you. Jesus, you're my savior and Jesus, you're my Lord, you're it. And I thank you for dying on the cross for me and I thank you for rising from the dead on the third day for me and I thank you for bearing all my sin. I thank you for giving me eternal life. Come into my heart, come into my life, rule, reign. And if you're a person who's crossing the line of faith today in Jesus Christ, if you're getting square with God for the first time today, that's the biggest deal ever in your life. And it's so big that around here we ask people to tell us when they get square with God. And so I'm going to ask you to do that with me right now. Nobody's looking around. This is a private moment, you, me, and God. If you'd say that you got square with God today by praying that prayer with me, would you be real bold and just slip your hand up and lock eyes with me and just say, yep, yeah, yes, absolutely. Way to go. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Way to go. Yeah, and in the back, absolutely. Way to go. Absolutely. Life is new and life is different and everything has changed. Everything's changed. And oh God, I pray that for every single one of us that we would be changed, that we would be your ambassadors of love, that we would recognize that time is short and that we would get our spiritual houses in order, that we would live square with you, square with other people, and that we would tell others about what it is to know you, what it is to follow you, what it is to be a child of the Most High God, and that we would live our lives on the mission with the purpose of inviting people into relationship with you. Please, Jesus. May we not be comfortable May we not be passive. Engage us, God, with what it is that you want to do right here, right now.
And we pray that your kingdom would come on earth through us, Jesus. For it's in your name we pray. And everyone agreed and said,